Captain. You're listening to the Unsanctioned Citizen Podcast. Here's your host, Sheila Dean. Good afternoon. It is day 48 of 100 days of Colin. I stopped putting the notation markers up there. We've got a pretty awesome uh, level of programming here for you today. Just take a moment and invite more people. So we're going to do more Great Reset. This has actually been one of the more popular topical shows, so I'm going to keep going. Um, so we did come listen. Turns out that there's a lot of a lot of heat and light around the World Economic Forum. A lot of people kind of alarmed about the stuff that's going on. So I'm going to begin again. Post more more updates to let everybody know what's shaken. Hang on. How's everybody doing out there? So we're gonna do sending it to as many of the folks as we can. So what we have for you today is I have a lot of links, and I'm gonna go over some of these after the reading, just briefly so that we have a clear foresight on onto the audience about what's going on. There's a lot of really heavy financial machining happening right now and I think that that can feel really unfair uh, because it's happening 10 miles above your head. No one at the Fed seems to really give a crap but there's light at the end of the tunnel. I want you to know that uh, if interest interest rates spike, they are accountable to the public because I have just discovered that they take public input occasionally on certain subjects. So when they solicit the public for their input, um, there will be an opportunity to, uh, to weigh in on matters that happen to bother you or impact you in any way in your daily when it comes to the Fed. And that is somewhat comforting because Beating the air is the, you know, very definition of, of uh, <clears throat> impotent rage. So let's get to it. We are reading from The Great Reset, written by Glenn Beck. We're continuing the chapter. Okay, The Great Reset, Joe Biden and the Rise of 21st Century Fascism. And I'm going to just continue. This is a global Green New Deal. As I explained at length in Chapter 3, the most important long-term justification used by supporters of the Great Reset is that it is necessary for saving humanity from the existential crisis posed by climate change. In that chapter, I noted that Schwab argued, we only have one planet and we know that climate change should be the next global disaster with even more dramatic consequences for humankind. We have to decarbonize the economy. Uh, in the short window still remaining and bring our thinking and behavior once more into harmony with nature. How exactly do Klaus and his friends aim to bring Americans into harmony with nature? By imposing an expansive, never-before-attempted global Green New Deal that would wipe out the use of most fossil fuels and replace conventional energy with wind, solar, and other earth-destroying green energy resources. There is a debate that's not happening in this book at this time. But uh, it's not time for the debate. It's time to read. Uh, Martina Larkin, a member of the executive committee at the World Economic Forum, wrote in May 2020 that the Green New Deal must be at the heart of the COVID-19 recovery hmm. in Europe. According to Larkin, a new forecast by climate experts at the Global Carbon Project predicts that carbon dioxide emissions could fall by the largest amount since the Second World War due to the impact of COVID-19 on economic activity. This means carbon output could fall by more than 5% year on year, which is the first dip since a 1.4% reduction following the 2008 financial crisis. However, as economic activity resumes and countries and companies develop recovery strategies, we need to fast track these structural changes towards a fossil free economy. The European Green Deal could be the opportunity to leapfrog this ambition. 
Achieving this transformative agenda and making Europe a leader in the global climate transition requires a massive mobilization of public and private investments. The Commission estimates that reaching the net zero 2050 target requires at least $1 trillion of public and private investment over the next decade. However, as Larkin knows well, the European nations, just like the United States, do not have any cash available for the public and private investment needed to build nations of solar panels, to build billions of solar panels. They were refining huge deficits. So how do they plan to pay for the Green New Deal? By printing money, of course, in line with the principles of Stephanie Kelton and other modern monetary theorists. There simply is no feasible way to pay for these plans as ambitious without a monetary framework that would allow for absurdly high levels of government deficit spending. The Larkin and Schwab are not the only Great Reset supporters who have called for massive green infrastructure plans as part of the COVID-19 recovery. Just about everyone I could find who supports a Great Reset also backs some version of the Green New Deal, both in Europe and elsewhere, and many began attempting to link the pandemic to quote-unquote green infrastructure proposals in the earliest days of the coronavirus crisis. In March 2020, the World Economic Forum published an article titled, Could COVID-19 Give Rise to a Greener Global Future? The article was written by two academics and the co-president of the Club of Rome, a powerful nonprofit organization most famous for its 1972 book, The Limits to Growth, which predicted that modern civilization may not survive the 21st century because of the resource depletion. According to the authors of the March article, the only way to save the planet is to use the COVID-19 pandemic to rebuild the global economy using policies such as the Green New Deal. They wrote, The coronavirus pandemic is a wake-up call to stop exceeding the planet's limits. After all, deforestation, biodiversity loss, and climate change make all pandemics more likely. Governments that succeed in containing epidemics all tacitly follow the same mantra. Follow the science and prepare for the future. But we can do much better. Rather than simply reacting to disasters, we can use science to design economies that will mitigate the threats of climate change, biodiversity, loss, and pandemics. We must start investing in what matters by laying the foundation for a green, circular economy that is anchored in nature-based solutions and geared towards the public good. Then they called on lawmakers to redirect public funding linked to fossil fuels towards green infrastructure reforestation and investments in a more circular, shared, regenerative, low-carbon economy. At the June 2020 World Economic Forum virtual meeting, Antonio Guterres, the Secretary General of the United Nations, said the Great Reset should be used to build economies that are more sustainable, a term often used by Great Resetters as a stand-in for green energy. Guterres also called for economies to become more resilient in the face of climate change and many other global changes we face. What Larkin, Guterres, and Schwab don't mention, however, is that financial institutions, investors, and corporations would amass untold trillions of dollars if the Green New Deal were to become a reality and spread globally. More on that a little later. Global Cooperation If you're wondering how all of this can be achieved on a grand scale without increasing the power of global governing bodies like the United Nations, then you are not alone. Although great resetters have never say that they want to abandon all notions of national sovereignty in favor of world government, they do make it clear that greatly empowering international organizations like the United Nations will be necessary under a great reset model. Schwab admits that the level of cooperation and ambition for the great reset implies is unprecedented, but he says it is not some impossible dream. It simply will require, quote, global cooperation on a gigantic scale. Excuse me. This global pandemic has also demonstrated, again, how interconnected we are, Schwab said. We have to restore a functioning system of smart global cooperation structured to address the challenges of the next 50 years. Excuse me. The Great Reset will require us to integrate all stakeholders of global society into a community of common interest, purpose, and action. I hate to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but a global 
community of common interest, purpose, and action sounds an awful lot like Schwab is suggesting we put all international governing bodies in charge of the world economy, doesn't it? Vika Sijesbima is a member of the Board of Trustees at the World Economic Forum and the co-chair of the Global Center on Adaptation, GCA. He is a little clearer about the reset's intentions to usher in a glorious new era of enhancing global government, or at the very least, a high degree of global cooperation that would change societies around the world. According to Sigesmova, um, the Great Reset requires improving global, global multilateral cooperation and aligning both the recovery of our economies and priorities of society. For the Great Reset to succeed, we have to change the way we do business and manage health, nature, the environment, and societal issues at the same time. Despite the unprecedented impact and global spread, there was little cooperation between countries. In many aspects, it was everyone for themselves when buying ventilators, face masks, tests, and more. As healthcare for governments is a domestic issue, countries did not explore multilateral joint approaches and solutions. Let's hope this was not the litmus test for other cross-border crises like climate change. Only via collaboration between countries can we address such issues the stakeholder economy. It is easy to look at the long list of left-wing government programs appearing earlier in the chapter and think that this is all that resetters have in mind when they talk about pushing the reset button on the global economy. But the truth is, as crazy as it might sound, the trillions of dollars in new spending and total destruction of the world's existing energy industry and creation of countless social programs like the universal basic income and government-managed health care are not the most important parts of the reset or even part of the foundation of the plan. At the beginning of the, this chapter, I cited Klaus Schwab's broad outline for the Great Reset, and at the time, I told you that his call to steer the market towards fairer outcomes by, in part, creating the conditions of, for a stakeholder economy was something you should take note of because it plays a pivotal role in grasping just how big the Great Reset's transformation would be. Now that you have a better understanding of some of the more overtly socialistic elements of the Great Reset, let's turn our attention to what Schwab and many others in the Great Reset movement mean by building a stakeholder economy. First, as the idea of a stakeholder economy, also commonly referred to as stakeholder capitalism, Sounds pretty darn innocuous, even boring. After all, the whole idea of government and business officials caring about stakeholders, a term that normally means one who is involved or affected by a course of action, does not sound very radical. But if you start to dig deeper into the Great Reset Pit, you will quickly see that stakeholder capitalism represents a dramatic departure from our common understanding of market-based economics. Stakeholder capitalism is an economic system in which companies are effectively required to put social justice causes and or the goals of elites, which of course vary wildly depending on the parties involved, before profit, supply, and demand, the desires of consumers and other market forces that normally direct capitalist systems, which don't forget have created the most prosperous, healthy, safe societies humankind has ever known. Our more traditional understanding of capitalism is often called shareholder capitalism by great resetters because they say it prioritizes the interest of shareholders, another word for owners, of corporations over the interest of the wider community. After calling for a change in capitalism, Vicky Sigesma <laughs> explained in an article for the World Economic Forum that under the Great Reset, the economic focus should shift from short-term and profit only to long-term incorporating value, value creation for people and the planet, moving from shareholder value to stakeholder interest. Schwab, who has long advocated for stakeholder capitalism, said in January 2020, business has now to fully embrace stakeholder capitalism, which means not only maximizing profits, 
but use their capabilities and resources in cooperation with governments and civil society to address key issues of this decade. They have to actively contribute to a more cohesive and sustainable world. Sijesbima further explained that the principles must be embraced by companies in a stakeholder capitalist system focus on a longer-term economic strategy that is anchored in addressing the sustainable development goals produced by the United Nations. When great resetters talk about shifting to a stakeholder model, they typically mean one centered on UN SDGs, that's Sustainable Development Goals. So it is important to understand, understand what the Sustainable Development Goals involve and why Great Reset promoters are so interested in them. This kind of probably gets back to ESG. The Sustainable Development Goals were created at a meeting of the UN Nations in September of 2015. The SDGs, which serve as a successor to the UN uh, Agenda 21 Sustainable Development Plan, yes, that Agenda 21, represent commitments made by UN Nations to, quote, end poverty and hunger everywhere, to combat inequalities within and among countries, to build peaceful, just, and inclusive societies, to protect human rights and promote gender equality and the empowerment of women and girls, and to ensure the lasting protection of the planet and its natural resources, and all by 2030. If you ever hear anyone talk about Agenda 2030, it's almost certainly in reference to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. According to the United Nations, this collective journey is, quote, accepted by all countries and is acceptable to all, taking into account different national realities, capacities, and levels of development, and respecting national policies and priorities. Hmm. I wonder how they arrived at that conclusion. In their commitment to the Sustainable Development Goals, Member nations said they imagine a world free of poverty, hunger, disease, and want where all life can thrive. They also said we envisage a world free of fear and violence, a world with universal literacy, a world with equitable and universal access to quality education at all levels, to health care, social protection, where physical, mental, and social well-being are assured, a world where human habitats are safe, resilient, and sustainable, and where... There is universal access to affordable, reliable, and sustainable energy. A world of universal respect for human rights and human dignity, the rule of law, justice, equality, and non-discrimination. Of respect for race, ethnicity, and cultural diversity. Of equal opportunity permitting the full realization of human potential and contributing to shared prosperity. They further committed to a world in which every country enjoys sustained, inclusive, and sustainable economic growth and decent work for all. A world in which consumption and production patterns and use of all natural resources from air to land, from rivers, lakes, and aquifers to oceans and seas are sustainable. One in which democracy, good governance, and the rule of law, as well as enabling environments at national and international levels, are essential for a sustainable development, including sustained and inclusive economic growth, social development, environmental protection, and the, the eradication of poverty and hunger. One in which development and the application of technology are climate sensitive, respect biodiversity, and are resilient. One in which humanity lives in harmony with nature, and in which wildlife and other living species are protected. I get their desire to aim high, but creating a world free of want? You know, I want a unicorn and clouds made of cotton candy. Is the United, States, United Nations promising these things too? Fat dads like me love cotton candy clouds and demand to know. I realize all of this sounds like your standard pie-in-the-sky globalism from the United Nations, but that is because it is exactly what is sustainable development goals are. This does not mean they are meaningless. This certainly have a lot of value to supporters of the Great Reset who want to use these goals as a springboard to control economic, act economic activity while making their corporate friends filthy rich. But how exactly would that work, taking a Schwab and the other Great Reset supporters want to transform the global e economy into one which every com 
every company focuses on advancing SDGs or whatever else the ruling class deems important than on profits. In December 2019, Schwab and the World Economic Forum released its Davos Manifesto 2020, which outlines some of the core values of a new stakeholder economy. It's stakeholders. Okay. No, we're not searching the web. Employees, customers, suppliers, local communities, and societies at large. That's the stakeholder communities. Or put in much clearer terms, in a stakeholder capitalist system, companies should first serve the collective according to the demands of the ruling class and government, not their customers and owners. Stakeholder capitalism is just another way of saying collectivist capitalism, which is really not capitalism at all. To many Americans, perhaps even some reading this book, this concept might not sound all that worrisome. You might be thinking, okay, so under the Great Reset, companies would have to factor in other considerations in addition to profits. So what? Before dismissing my concerns, stop and think for a minute about the implications of this idea. A profit-driven model for businesses ensures that companies put the consumer first, and under the system, individuals dictate the products and services that are produced by voting with their dollars. Companies that want to survive listen to the demands of their customers and even try to anticipate them, but in a stakeholder system, individuals are replaced by an elite group of Bond villain wannabes in the ruling class. They dictate which products and services are produced, which medicines are produced, what is released, and who ought to be hired to provide them to customers, not you, the individual. So let's understand ESG. Understanding ESG. How can the reset overlords know which companies are properly pursuing the right goals? Quote unquote. To help push businesses in the direction of the elites and society deem best, the World Economic Forum, business leaders, financial institutions, activists, and government officials from around the world have developed environmental, social, and governments governance metrics that can help companies, investors, governments, and the public know who the good businesses are and which scoundrel companies are interested only in turning a profit, developing new products, and hiring new employees. I mean, there's nothing worse than a company looking to hire more employees and earn a profit in the marketplace, right? Although there are several versions of these ESG metrics, which is Environmental Sustainability Governance, Glenn Beck, ESG metrics available today, the metrics promoted by the World Economic Forum and the International Business Council, a group created by the World Economic Forum in 2001, are perhaps positioned best to become the international standard in the coming years. The final draft of the World Economic Forum metrics titled Measuring Stakeholder Capitalism Towards Common Metrics and Consistent Reporting of Sustainable Value Creation was released in September of 2020 and prepared in collaboration with experts from Bank of America and the big four accounting firms Deloitte, KPMG, PricewaterhouseCoopers and Ernst & Young, all of which are worth tens of billions of dollars and widely considered to be the most influential and powerful firms in the world. You know, real down-to-earth people who know what life is like for the average everyday worker. The World Economic Forum's ESG standards include 21 core metrics and 34 expanded metrics. Together they allow auditors to develop comprehensive ESG scores that can be used to determine whether a company is in line with the demands of the ruling class. Standards are divided into four pillars, principles of governance, planet, people, and prosperity. Although some of the core metrics that they compose, each pillar are reasonable and even advisable and closely tracking, quote, incidents of corruption and confirmed during the current year but related to previous years, many others are clearly designed to advance social justice causes favored by those mostly on the left. In the principles of governance pillar, the World Economic Forum suggests that companies be scored based on 
the membership of underrepresented social groups serving in a company's governing body, as well as those leaders' competencies relating to economic, environmental, and social topics. In the planet pillar, companies are evaluated based on their greenhouse gas emissions, their compliance with the Paris Climate Accord, their land use and ecological sensitivity, and their water consumption and withdrawal in water-stressed areas, among other environmental standards. The people pillar of, uh, is in full woke ideology, including ESG measure for the percentage of employees per employee category by age group, gender, and other indicators of diversity, essentially ethnicity, as well as pro-labor union met measures such as the percentage of active workforce covered under collective bargaining agreements. Let's stop for a second and think about what the World Economic Forum's ESG model would look like in the real world. Under the World Economic Forum standards, a company with relatively larger profits, high employee and customer satisfaction, and a high quality product and service, a company that would universally be considered well managed under a free market system could be rated lower than a company in the same industry that is less efficient, has fewer profits, and worse products and services, but has the right ratio of Asian to black workers, low carbon dioxide emissions in their supply chain, and the ideal number of transgender members on the board of directors. Now let's get one thing out of the way right from the start. Private businesses should have the right to engage in any number of silly, stupid, wasteful, noble, kind, compassionate, or ridiculous causes to hold themselves to standards that I think are foolish or counterproductive. Just a moment. As far as I'm concerned, if businesses want to create an ESG system that rewards corporations that give raises only to workers who like the color green, or that pay salaries ending in odd numbers, or that are owned by people named Glenn, then I'm fine with that. Investors, employees, and consumers should have the right to decide who they want to do business with, and if people want to spend their time and money doing business with only the wokest of woke companies, then that should be their right. But for the most part, that system has always existed in every market economy. Nothing has stopped consumers from buying from only those companies that choose to embrace their ideals and nothing has stopped investors from investing in them. So what do Klaus Schwab and the other great reset elites have in mind when they say they want to advance ESG models, tear down existing shareholder capitalist systems, and replace it with an economy focused on stakeholders? The answer is most certainly twofold. The transformation could be brought on by either government mandates or the use of monetary incentives made possible by newly printed cash from central banks. Under the first option, governments around the world should start building stricter regulatory schemes that directly or indirectly force businesses to focus on improving ESG scores rather than profits in order to continue operating in certain nations or regions or to continue being publicly traded as a corporation. Some governments have already started putting into place regulations that force companies to act responsibly and within line of concerns of the elites. As World Economic Forum Project Specialist Elizabeth Anvig noted in May 2020, World Economic Forum article calling for a great reset, legal and societal pressures on businesses operating around the world are rapidly evolving. There is a call for efforts to better align the activities of corporations with society's drive to build a more inclusive, equitable, and sustainable economy. The implementation of the Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs, and Agenda 2030 will depend on positive contributions from the private sector through responsible business conduct and responsible investments. Doing the right thing is about more than just complying with the law. However, legal obligations are increasingly requiring companies to act responsibly. In some cases, American investors and businesses themselves are begging for regulatory agencies to use their powers to impose social justice and environmental causes. 
In July 2020, a group of more than a do three dozen large investors, activists, nonprofits, pension funds, and former politicians, which together managed nearly $1 trillion in assets, sent a letter to the Federal Reserve, America's central bank, and the Securities and Exchange Commission and other regulatory bodies asking them to impose rules that would supposedly help stop climate change. According to the New York Times, the letter read in part, the climate crisis poses a systemic threat to financial markets and the real economy with significant disruptive consequences on asset valuations and our nation's economic stability. The Times further reported that financial threat combi combined with the physical risks posed by climate change may create disastrous impacts the likes of which we haven't seen before, the letter says. It urges the Fed, the Securities and Exchange Commission, and other agencies to explicitly integrate climate change across your mandates. These investors are asking the U.S. government to do everything in its power to force other companies to adopt their woke causes, bringing to mind the oldest statist slogan, ideas so good they are mandatory. Um, similarly, according to the World Economic Forum, Ma Jun, the chairman of China's Green Finance Committee and an avid supporter of the Great Reset, has called for the reset to include tighter reporting and regulation for companies to ensure they are working harder to advance environmental goals. Regulatory agencies in the United States are listening. In March 2021, Perkins Coie, a highly influential international law firm, reported, Over the past few weeks, the United States Security and Exchange Commission has taken several actions that put climate change front and center, reflecting the importance to many investors of climate change-related disclosures. In early February, the SEC announced the addition of Satyam Khanna as a senior policy advisor charged with coordinating and overseeing efforts related to climate and other environmental, social, and governance issues. Mr. Khanna is the first ever senior policy advisor for the ESG issues at the SEC. Since then, the SEC has announced a rapid series of additional initiatives. The president's nominee to be the next SEC chair, Gary Gensler, said during his confirmation hearing that investors want more information about climate risks and the disclosure requirements that should be grounded in what reasonable investors and find material. If confirmed, Mr. Gensler indicated to the Senate Committee on Banking, Housing and Urban Affairs that he would likely pursue rulemaking around climate risk and disclosures, perhaps other ESG topics. Additionally, in 2021, Bloomberg writer Bill Dudley outlined some of the radical developments underway at the U.S. Federal Reserve, led by Chairman Jay Powell, who is eagerly working to build a regulatory framework that can be used to push banks and the companies they do business with to adopt climate and energy policies favored by the left. Power, Powell and the Fed's Board of Governors created two new entities, the Financial Stability Climate Committee, to focus on the broader financial system and the Supervision Climate Committee to focus on individual institutions. This matters because it means top officials are committed to regularly evaluating and responding to the threat of climate change. They're already working to ensure the banks embed climate change in their business decisions Sorry, and analyzing exposures, identifying concentrations of risk, and considering how to manage them over time. The recent developments at the SEC and the Federal Reserve are vital because they will serve as the foundation for future Great Reset economic transformations in the United States by providing lawmakers in Washington with the tools needed to push companies towards full ESG adoption. And they are already acting as a warning to American businesses that future regulatory changes are just around the corner. But as troubling as things are in America, the situation is much worse in Europe, where many political figures have been working for years to make ESG standards mandatory for all large businesses and many small businesses. As my co-author Justin Haskin reported in 2021, in March, the Parliament of the European Union passed a resolution that seeks to require nearly all of the EU's largest companies and many smaller businesses, too, to adopt and prioritize ESG metrics 
and especially important for the U.S. businesses and consumers, the resolution would further that the EU companies only work with those who share the European Union's environmental, social, and governance standards. In a report about the European ESG resolution, international law firms Shearman and Sterling noted if adopted, all EU member states would be required to implement the directive into their national laws. This will result in a substantive due diligence requirement being imposed on companies where they're based in the EU or selling their products and services into the EU across their entire value chain and with potential sanctions for non-compliance. Potential sanctions for non-compliance. So understanding what European Union officials mean by value chain is extremely important. In their resolution, value chain is defined as all activities, operations, business relationships, and investment chains of an undertaking, and includes entities with which undertaking has a direct or indirect business relationship upstream and downstream, which either A, supply products or parts of products or services that contribute to the undertaking undertakings own products or services or B receive products or services from the undertaking excuse me I need a drink excuse me okay that means if the EU resolution were to become law and as of the time of this writing that is looking more and more likely all US businesses having any direct or indirect relationship with the EU business upstream and downstream would be forced to operate under some or all of Europe's proposed ESG system. Now it's not all true that all great resetters are calling for the use of regulations to impose ESG standards on private companies, at least not in every situation. In some cases they talk about adopting ESG voluntarily. In 2019 Schwab encouraged businesses to adopt stakeholder capitalist principles voluntarily so they can, quote, move beyond their legal obligations and uphold their duty to society. This is where the second method of creation, creating a stakeholder economic system comes into play. Rather than use regulations to impose environmental, social, and governance standards on companies, some great resetters want to use massive government and central bank spending programs to push companies towards adopting ESG standards. A move that looks eerily similar to proposals backed by people like modern monetary theorist Stephanie Kelton, who long suggested that the best way to progress society is to not only expand the power of government, but also print trillions of dollars and tie social justice strings to the money. So pursuing modern monetary theory principles like those supported by Kelton would make it unnecessary to completely dismantle private property ownership. Government and central banks would become the biggest and most important consumers in the marketplace, which of course would not and could not function as a true market because of the outsized power and influence government and central banks spending the power of those bank spending programs. Okay, so I'm gonna wrap it there, see if anybody's okay. So we've got three people here. Let me see if I can call some more people to come to the room. So I've invited more people to engage on the discussion. Wow, we've been talking for 38 minutes. Can't believe it. It's been a long one today. Um, so I have a few updates on what's going on. So the Great Reset is about, as we are kind of unfurling, is it's, it's rolled around a lot of high, seemingly utopian and the delivery models are not necessarily explained. They, they have structures that say it's about the Green New Deal. And what I've observed about the Green New Deal is that it's not, it's not directly deliverable. There's a lot of spending programs, but they're not directly deliverable. And, you know, I think that there are many Greens and green politicians who do have high criticism of the Green New Deal. And, you know, their their comments are worth listening to. 
I don't have a whole fine grasp on them, but I, I would invite people like Brady Crow to come back to the program to discuss the green slant on the Great Reset. They have long-term goals for improving the environmental outcome of the whole of the planet, but conformance is an issue, and people who involved in finance, from what I can understand, at the top rungs of society haven't ever made, you know, the environment the whole goal. It's just a means to an end, and I don't cast them as trustworthy characters. Um, they've been enlisted as allies, uh, but. You know, that comes on a woke agenda, which, you know, through the washing of things has become a, a great grab and to kind of sliding in a Marxist slash socialist um, architecture into local governments to flip over police and law enforcement structures. And that hasn't really been at the, it's been more taken towards the shock and awe to dismantle and dispose of the police. I'm calling it the dispose of the police movement at this point. And it's invalidated the woke the woke movement. So instead of pivoting to something more morally sound, you know, that, that observes a, a more well they call it inclusive, but it isn't. You know, it's it's not inclusive if you're excluding people who disagree with you and for reasons that have nothing to do with race and I've watched people have watched that happen so the the woke movement has viable critics and viable criticism but they're punched in the face and kicked out of the room if they have to say any, any bringing forth any type of dissenting debate and we watched that happen through 2021 and we watched it happen over something as interpersonal as the vaccines, which, you know, that should be a really personal, highly individual thing, but the individual has no matter. They have no no matter. <laughs> the only thing that matters is, you know, the tone police agenda from the mothership. So I, I don't know, you know, how we're going to really wrap our arms around this totally, but the Great Reset has has some kind of shearing elements that, that funnel or kind of corral the whole elements of our society that revolve around important things we need like money that we use every day like money. You know, you can say, oh, well, money is an object that, that should have no meaning and we shouldn't rely on it in an ideal society, la da 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 but we do. Unfortunately, if you try to get along without oxygen or water or air, um, or or sunlight or anything else you need. You need a little bit of money if you're going to function in a in a capital economy, and that's what we have. That's reality. Okay, it's not a socialist utopia, and that's why you need to open your wallet and pay for things with either a bank card or cash. Okay. Now what I've seen happening is that they are excluding cash as a part of a green agenda. And cash never really, you know, that's not green or not green. It's just cash, you know, and it's, it could be, you know, what's the objective here is to eliminate all paper. I don't think that that's, that's really a, a very viable goal um, on small base, small commodities based transactions. No, it's to control the way that you spend your money and to coerce you into using an architecture you don't really want to volunteer for. And we've mentioned that before on the program as well. So, okay. So I'm going to go down a few of these things that I've put in the links area. So there's, there's a lot of executive orders coming from Mr. Delaware, the senator, former senator from Delaware which is a flag you can think about it or choose not to think about it, but I'm thinking about it a whole hell of a lot more now that the central banking uh, people have been empowered to do things like hike interest rates every quarter, more of a point, that inflation has now become a choking 
device and that there's a lot more censorship, there's a lot more obvious fascism happening as a result of emergency grabs that just won't go away. We can deny that, but you know, if we had a responsible leadership that honored our system, our initial system of government, they would just say, okay, we're done. We're actually done with this, this uh, emergency power program and we're only going to use it because it's a medical emergency. But that's not what they're using it for and that's part of the reason why we covered this in this chapter. They need the pandemic emergency to exist and be sustained so that they can move out more government spending. And that's not okay. That's not what it's for. And that we need to speak up about that. Now, while the Fed has this policy slant of being chased into the box of stakeholder capitalism, that's what's going on. All right? If this is what's going on, you can use your tools, your voice, as a stakeholder to indicate that you don't want a CBDC. For instance, you don't want your identity or your national nationality tied to a digital coin in order to function. Okay, you can say that. You can object to this. You can register your your dissent, your objection to this for important reasons. And here's I, I'm going to give you one here from Human Events. Libby Emons. She's Biden is issuing a transhumanist biotechnology executive order calling to program biology the same way we program computers. And how is he doing this? Uh, through coding DNA. Okay, mRNA vaccines were you know, basically programmable, injectable mRNA vaccines. And mRNA can record code or specific coding that is from bioengineering. Okay, the science is sound. It's happened. It, it's in thousands of people's bodies with the mRNA vaccine. So they can move forward a transhumanist agenda for biotechnology and biomanufacturing. So here I'll just read a paragraph from this article, which is in the link section. Section, sorry. Um, for biotechnology and biomanufacturing to help us achieve our societal goals, the order reads: The United States needs to invest in foundational scientific capabilities. We need to develop genetic engineering technologies and techniques that will able to be able to write circuitry for cells and predictably program biology in the same way we in which we write software and. Comp- program computers, unlock the power of biological data, including through computing and tools and artificial intelligence, and advance the science of scale-up production, while reducing the obstacles for commercialization so that innovation technologies and products can reach markets faster. Okay, but I am worried about the markets, because markets won't be the markets, it'll be the markets run by, you know, 10 oligarchs and Joe Biden, and whoever Joe Biden's doing business with terms of government today, which unfortunately would be China, who's a huge climate polluter that is no one wants to regulate them and India. So I'm going to flip over to the ACLU. ACLU, finally, I thought it was a come to Jesus moment until I read this news and commentary. We need digital cash that is actually like cash. So they haven't turned over a new Bitcoin. They are still on the Soros rigmarole, but they're making it sound like they're still going to be involved and keeping it from tracking us and blocking transactions and, uh, you know, getting involved against Venmo and PayPal. I don't buy it because the last time that they were involved, we got a hell of a lot of mass surveillance. They didn't do very much, but run a lot of alarmist PR about it and did jack shit. They won very few cases and the advocacy for real human rights, real American civil liberties. My liberties, okay, is super low for the last 10 years, ever since Obama entered the trajectory. Ever ever since they shot that man out of the government cannon to be president, uh, my life and my privacy has gone into the toilet. Okay, so I'm going to flip over here to Edward Snowden, who's still living in Russia, 
And he's still talk. What is he talking about today? He's talking about America's open wound. He's talking about. It has been a month since President Biden mounted the steps of Philadelphia's Independence Hall, declaring it his duty to ensure that each of us understand the central function, the central faction, sorry, of his political opposition are extremists that threaten the very foundations of our republic. Flanked by the uniformed icons of his military and standing atop a Lenny Reifenstahl stage. The leader clenched his fist to illustrate seizing the future from the forces of fear, division, and darkness. The words falling from the teleprompter ran rich with the language of violence. A dagger at the throat, emerging from the shadow of lies. What's happening to our country is not normal. Is he wrong to think of that? The question the speech intended to raise, the one lost in the unintentionally villainous pageantry is whether and how we are to continue as a democracy and a nation of laws. For all the Twitter arguments over Biden's prepositions or propositions, there has been little considerations of his premises. So that is also embedded in the links section. You can go there when you're done. So, um, and I also have a feature, short feature, just to let you know where this is going. Microsoft has stepped up to the governance call. They're rising to the occasion to help stop global extremism. And so, but they're focusing on New Zealand's approach to Christchurch. So, and an attack on Christchurch. So they're not focusing on anything domestic, but it's a UN initiative. So watch Watch out. Well, you know, this hand over here is yelling about extremism in America and focusing on on political opponents that, you know, have an R in front of it or who just won't vote D. Um, then way over there, geopolitical companies, geopolitical companies, multinationals, like Microsoft are going to be assisting the anti-extremism agenda. This is not going away. You're going to hear these themes again and again. So um, I just wanted to let you know about that. And then with that, I'll probably just wrap it up. Does anybody want to come up to speak, add a comment, any of the above before we step out of here? Anyone? Okay, well, for that, this has been the Unsanctioned Citizen. We will see you tomorrow because it's 40-something days ago. <laughs> Take care. Thanks for listening. Before you go, hit the subscribe button. Remember that callers are welcome. Subscribers can access Unsanctioned Citizen podcast archives at Substack, Automatic, iHeartRadio podcasts, and call-in. Please stay in touch. We want to hear from you. Visit SheilaMDean.com.